Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. And now, Danielle's next killer woman. Welcome to the Killer Women podcast, a proud member of the Authors on the Air Global Network with more than 4 million listeners. I am your host, suspense author Danielle Girard, and my guest today is Robin Hardy. Robin is the best-selling author of The Perfect Family, The Arrangement, Her Pretty Face, and The Party, which was a finalist for the Arthur Ellis Award for Best Crime Novel. Her book, The Swap, debuted at number one on the Globe and Mail and Toronto Star Canadian bestseller list. She is the screenwriter and executive producer of the independent film, The Steps, and she lives in Vancouver, British Columbia with her family and two cute but deadly rescue chihuahuas. Welcome, Robin. Thank you so much for having me, Danielle. Oh, it's so fun. And I am a fan. I've read most of your books. Um, I've missed a couple in the beginning, but I love The Drowning Woman. And before we talk about all the things about this book and um, your characters and plot and all the fun stuff, can you please tell our listeners who don't know about The Drowning Woman what this story is about? Of course. So, um... The Drowning Woman about a woman named Lee, who was a very successful restaurateur. She's a chef and um, owned her own restaurant, which she lost during the pandemic. And because she made some poor choices, she uh, ends up kind of on the run and living in her car. And she's feeling very vulnerable as a woman would um, living in her car. So she decides to sleep um she drives up north to a very wealthy on seaside enclave outside seattle and this is where she sort of sets up camp and is sleeping in her car and one uh pre-dawn morning she hears one of the women from these beautiful cliffside mansions um trying to drown herself in the ocean and on instinct lee runs in and saves this woman's life but the woman hazel is not grateful because she was trying to commit suicide um, because she's in a very abusive marriage and an unlikely friendship forms between these two women from different ends of the spectrum um, who are both drowning in their own ways Um, and then one day hazel asks lee to help her disappear and uh, things go crazy from there. They do go crazy. It's such a fun story. So, um, do you? I always like to ask this question because I think it's so interesting how how stories develop and where they come from. Do you remember sort of the seed of the story, where that the idea came from? Yes. So this is such a convoluted way to get to this story that it almost doesn't make sense. But this is how <laughs> it came to me. So I was asleep one night or I wasn't asleep, I guess I should have been asleep, but I was lying awake. I, you know, and I was warm and I had the windows open and there was a woman outside on the street, um, having a phone conversation and I could hear every single word. And I thought she has no idea that someone is listening to her side of the conversation. And so I started thinking about overhearing things my crime my crime writer brain started going what if she said something um like she was planning a crime or she was suicidal or what have you and I was like what what do you do if it's a complete stranger um would how would you intervene and then I thought well I guess I'd probably call the police um 
And I thought, but what if I didn't have a phone? What if I had no way to call the police? And then I started thinking about living in your car. And right. then you know, I wrote this as we were coming out of the pandemic. And, um, you know, women, a lot of people were affected more than others were um, as we, you know, all experienced this, some um, different industries and marginalized communities and low income people and women, women like domestic abuse soared. Yeah. Um, women owned businesses were more likely to fail, I think, because of the other pressures that kind of tend to fall on women. And so I just started thinking about two women suffering in different ways and how I could sort of use that overhearing or scenario. Um, and yeah, so that was very convoluted, but that's no, but I, I actually think that's oftentimes how these stories come to us, right? It's like one little weird thing that we see in a nor in the course of a normal day or night. Um, and then, you know, it sort of just all spirals and then you think, well, what if it's that? And what if it's that? And where would, how would this woman be most vulnerable? And I, I love that that's the thought process. And I, I want to touch on a moment at what you talk about, because first of all, the, you know, coming out of the pandemic is so, um, I mean, that, that, you know, I know we, authors are sort of split on no book will ever be set after 2019 because we're never going to touch the pandemic. And right. then the idea that it never happened. And so we ignore it completely. But I love the way that like restaurants, I mean, it, you know, we're in a small town. And one of the things we, we tried to do was order takeout from all these restaurants that were really, really suffering um, through the pandemic. So I, I do feel like Lee's story resonates very much. And I want to talk about the, you know, because this is killer women, I want to talk about the impact that the pandemic had, particularly on women, and the pressures that, you know, that hit us, um, you know, or our gender harder than others. And so, you know, in, in that, in that way, um, I think it's really wonderful that you're shining a light on that. So, can you talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, what your research shows and and how you sort of adopted that into Lee's story. Yeah, so um, I had a personal connection to the whole restaurant thing and that my brother and his husband both worked in hospitality. My brother-in-law is a chef and my brother was a bartender. And I live in Vancouver, which is a very expensive city. And they left, they left the city. They moved to a smaller town that was more affordable. And they're just like, we can't do it. We're so out of work. And, you know, they're not women, but, <laughs> but right. anyway, back on the, on the restaurant side of yeah. things. Um, so, you know, they've landed on their feet and it all worked out well, but it was just so disruptive. And a, and a quote I heard during, um, as we were coming out of the pandemic and the lockdown and how people would say things like, oh, we're all in the same boat. And I heard a quote that said, no, we're not. We're all in the same storm, but we're in very different boats. Right. Well, you know, I've thought about like the the being locked down um, together with people. Imagine if you are in a bad relationship and how many relationships turned to violence under the stress. I mean, we we're, we're all probably suffering, you know, some sort of global PTSD from what we went through. Like we didn't know, you know, those first, it was very scary. Yeah didn't really know and were, was life ever going to be the same again and right. you know the it was so it was so stressful and imagine a, a bad marriage or children you know in a with a abusive parents you know I mean it's right. just so horrible and so I I didn't want to write a book set in the pandemic but I right. feel 
I feel like we were all changed by it. We were all impacted. And that was just weighing heavy on my mind as I was writing. And, um, you know, women, like they say, women-owned businesses suffered more. Um, women defaulted on loans more. And I think it was because there's a lot more domestic responsibilities that land on women. So when you add another layer to things. Um, right, right. Homeschooling. What about... Kids that had to like homeschool. My kids are older. Mine I went to university and she had to come home, but she was Mine too. She yeah. Could, uh, she could go online. Imagine having a six-year-old and a eight-year-old or something. And you have to add that to the list. I mean, I'm not saying dads couldn't do it too, but um, yeah, you know. I think some dads did do it, but I think proportionately it fell on women and women's careers to your point took a huge step backwards because we couldn't, women could not do it all. I mean, you know, they can't, you can't homeschool two children and also be present at your job all day. It just, that is yeah. not possible. And if you're in the restaurant business and, you know, to your point about your brother and, and his husband, you know, that's another group that is, you know, they're not women, but they're, you know, they're a, a, oftentimes marginalized group as well. So there's, it's not right. just women. I, you know, I talk about women because it's, like any marginalized people it's it's just you know I mean I think it was it was hard for all of us but it was harder for um specific communities definitely absolutely absolutely so let's talk about Hazel and Lee because I you know one of the things I I love about them is how different they are and yet how similar their how weirdly similar their circumstances are because you know both of these women in this in the story are really helpless and alone in very different ways obviously one has you know she sort of has access to everything she could possibly need, right? Hazel lives in a beautiful home and there's money's not going to be a worry for her. And yet she has less freedom in a weird way than this woman who has yeah. zero money and, and lives in her car and is estranged from her family and has lost her, you know. So it's there's sort of an underlying theme about, you know, uh, independence. How do you, you know, how do you create independence when we're so dependent on, oftentimes on men? And I sort of, you know, I'd love to have you explore, you know, talk to us about that because I think that's a huge theme and a wonderfully, and when I say themes, like this is a, it's a page turner. This isn't the kind of book where you're going to be like, well, I'm in, immersed in theme and I feel like I'm independent. It's not like that at all. I just like to draw out the little the threads that, that follow through and sort of how explore those because they're so interesting. Yeah. Thank you. So um, with Hazel, uh you know, she's in a, she's married a very, very wealthy man. And I've explored this theme before in the arrangement, which is about a sugar daddy relationship that goes really wrong. And I did a ton of research for that book, which, which sort of informed sort of the backstory of Hazel about why women would make these choices. Right. And no judgment, you know, like people, People are in situations where women are in situations or or it doesn't have to be women um, where you make a choice that might work out. Sometimes it does work out. Sometimes it works out completely fine and other times it doesn't. And for Hazel, um, she, I think she has feelings for Benjamin at the beginning. She, he's attractive. He's a lawyer. He's successful and wealthy, um, but he wants something from her that she she bites off more than she can chew. So it starts out as a master slave relationship, which if that is consensual and that is your bag, both of you, then that's totally cool. Absolutely. But, um, 
um, it's turns out it turns into something where he's not following the rules. Like there are rules in these relationships. I did a lot of research on this as well. And, you know, um, you know, both, both couples need, both partners need to be satisfied um, from that dynamic and Hazel stops being satisfied by it. And it starts to go darker and darker until there are no rules. And she's basically a prisoner. Um, yeah. It gets very, very dark for her. Yeah. Yeah, she is a prisoner. She's a, to which is yeah. an interesting thing to explore is it these, you know, these, we think about prisoner. I mean, we think, of course, there's, there's women who are, you know, who are, I mean, there's, uh, there's actual prisoners, right? You know, girls and women who are abducted and, but you can be very much a prisoner and, you know, and, and, and live on the outside as the, and people can look at your life and, and envy it and think, oh, wow, she's got it made. And yet the prison is set up so that you can't share I mean, she cannot ask for help. Um, she, she is, Hazel is, she, it is the ultimate catch 22 for her. Um, mm. Yeah, and of course, sorry, go ahead. I was just say, of course, that's what you want to explore in this book is this, you know, cause it's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, she's got a beautiful home. She's got beautiful clothes. She's allowed to go out for lunches to keep up the facade of things, but he's, she's all, she's under his ultimate control. And um you know, it's like, why does any woman stay with a, an abuser? There's so many layers to that, to that. Yeah. Question, right. And, and Hazel, Hazel in this case has a mom who's in very expensive memory care and she can't afford that without, without him. So that's another um, complication for her to try to break free. Right. And that, um, I mean, that makes, that is, it's a really, you know, and they're really, you know, they were, she, her mom was a single mom and raised her on her own. And, and, you know, so they had, you know, money had become, so, and as, as it often does in these situations and kind of for all of us at some, you know, at some level, that sort of like, you know, what will, what do we do in order to be comfortable? What am I willing to sacrifice so that my mother has, you know, the care she needs and I have a roof over my head and it seems huh. relatively simple in the beginning, right? And then it just, it snowballs into a very, it, at least for some and for Hazel, it snowballs into a really, really difficult um, situation. There was another really fascinating thing that I loved. Uh, it's on the actually very first page of the book. It's actually the first line of the book, yeah. um, which um, which talks about, and I'm, I'm gonna read it. Um, in sociological terms, they call it the fundamental attribution error. Basically it means that when people see someone in a bad situation, they tend to believe that individual brought it on themselves. So I wanted to explore that too, because I think that's a really interesting thing. Like when, and I think we're, we all a little bit um, susceptible of that. So can you talk to us about that? And, you know, that's interesting. Honestly, don't you think that is uh, why when we watch like Dateline or true crime documentaries, we're like, like as your, your internal voice, at least mine is going, well, I wouldn't do that. Oh, I would see through that, right? We all tell ourselves, we all tell ourselves that we would make different choices. And as much as we try to have empathy for people, we think, well, you know, clearly we are just superior to that person in, in decisions we make and, oh, we'd never end up that way. And that's what I wanted to show with her is that literally anybody um, could end up homeless, you know, like it's very, and she's not addicted. She's, I mean, there's like, there's a huge homelessness issue in my city. Um, I would I say 
there's so much addiction and mental health issues, which right. I, again, that doesn't, that's not someone's fault, right? The mm-hmm. things happen that like you're in pain that you, you know, you, no one says, oh, I think I would like to be a drug addict on the street. In my opinion, no one says that. Um, no, you're I don't, pain- th- yeah, I would agree. I don't think anybody right? says that. No. Some people think that. Some people think it's like, oh, yeah. a voice and stuff like that. Um, but I, I think that people are suffering and they're in pain and, and, you know, can't sort out mental health issues and drugs are an escape from their own suffering. And so, yeah, yeah. From pain. And so, um, anyway, with, uh, with Lee, I wanted to show that she was like, she had it going on. Like she was, she had her own restaurant and, um, I wrote a prequel short story that you get if you pre-order <laughs> but ah, later, but I wrote a prequel short, short story about uh, her when she owned her restaurant. And oh, I love that that's out there. Well, I hope you'll publish it in, in an ebook form or get, you know, make it yeah, available I, to people. I'll, I'll ask about that. I'm not sure that the, it's currently a pre-order incentive, but if we, if we could maybe do that, because it, it shows her when she was running the show and juggling all these things. And, and there's a hint of what's to come with her shady investor and how, how it's all going to go so wrong. But she, she was like a huge success story and she ends up losing, losing everything and living in her car. And so um, I want to show that, that. Yeah, and, and that very first scene, you know, it's very harrowing. She's, you know, sleeping yeah. in her car, and you know, she's sleeping kind of behind a the camper of a a couple that feels like a sort of a safety net. But you know, there are people patrolling those streets, and she has, you know, men attack the car, and it's a. I mean, I can feel her terror, and it's what a like what an incredibly long way to drop, right? To be to have had your own business and to be so successful. And then all of a sudden to literally be prey for, you know, these people on the street. Um, it is, it's a, it's a beautifully done opening. Cause we're like, oh my gosh, this woman, um, this is so, so, this is a really so, such a, such a hard thing. Um, very, yeah, yeah, very hard. I talked to a, a friend of mine who was a, a homelessness outreach worker for, for years. And so I, you know, I thought, well, I can imagine what it would be like, right? I can just make that up in my brain. But when I talked to him, I'm like, the, literally the first thing he said is, where will she get a weapon? It's the very first thing he said that every, every person now, but particularly every woman um, would need to arm herself. And they did a, recently there was a study or a survey done in Vancouver uh, talking to homeless women and 100% of them had been sexually assaulted, self-identifying women, 100%. So, you know, I mean, it, it would just be a matter of time for her. Oh, yeah. Right. So, God. Yeah. It's, and it's, uh, it's interesting because I know, I mean, obviously in America, uh, or in the, you know, in the U S things are such a, it's such a mess and our system is so broken. And I always think of Canada as being a little bit more like, you know, um put together so hopefully i'm well, not wrong but well, it's a mess it, it's all it's really bad here I, the thing about vancouver is uh we have the best weather for if you are uh, living on the streets a lot of people come here because you can survive you can't survive the winter on the streets in manitoba or quebec or ontario i mean it's you know there's shelter space but uh it's right. just an easier place people camp here 
Um, and so there's so many um, hurdles to getting to getting the safety net that we do offer. But this book is set in the States. So um, yes. it, right in Seattle. Yes, absolutely. We still have we still have social social more probably more more social support, but you can't get it without an address. You can't get a welfare check without an address. Right. Right. right? So it's sort of and then someone told me, tell, I don't know if you know about this, but um, I was actually talking to producers about this uh, who are interested in optioning this book. And she said in America, you have to prove you've been homeless for two years before you can get any support. I didn't know, I that. know that's true. I don't know if that's true, but that's what she two told me. Two years. Two years. Imagine the damage that you have suffered the abuse and the and if you're not self-medicating by then with right well I mean you know I, it's just unbelievable it's unbelievable so it's, it's unbelievable and I, I, I yeah and I, Seattle I mean I'm from San Francisco originally I'm in Montana now where it is harder of course to survive the winter homeless but in San Francisco it is you know um it is absolutely just um yeah, I mean, it's insane. It's totally insane. My husband was just there for business, and he said um, his hotel was right on the edge of the tenderloin. Yeah, and he said it was unbelievable. Like we have, it's called the downtown east side in Vancouver, and it's it's really the saddest thing you've ever seen. Like it's just yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's really these tent cities. I know. I'm sure you've seen them in Seattle and you probably have them there too. It is really, really, it is really, really, it's, yeah, we're in bad shape. Um, so, well, but the book, I mean, really, <laughs> the, 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 I, that just goes to say that the, you know, that the foundation of the book is based on feels so authentic and legitimate and it really does, ra you know, raise the stakes for Lee, who is, you know, like you said, it's a matter of time before she, and she knows that. I mean, it's very clear that she knows how much danger she's in. Um, and she's trying to figure out, you know, she can't, you know, and then of course the men take her purse, which I'm, I don't think I'm giving anything away because then she can't even get like, she can't get a legitimate job because she has yeah. no identification. I mean, it really just gets, goes from bad to worse. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, when you lose all that, it's virtually impossible to get you get back on your feet so and you know yeah. she she's another she's working homeless right she's working right. under the table but she's working but it's not enough right there's right. so many jobs that are not paying enough to cover a roof over your head let alone food and yeah right no absolutely that's exactly right so you've written I mean quite a few books I want to hear about your process um and you know there's always a sort of like plotter pantser thing and and I think there's a lot of variations of that is not exactly one mm. camp or the other but I would love to hear sort of how you know how you write books now what's your process uh, so I would say I would say I'm a loose plotter I'm definitely a plotter but not you know I know people who write a 15 page outline with every scene I'm not like that I, I hate writing outlines but I, <laughs> um, uh, I have written a lot of books this is my 13th book Oh, congratulations. Lucky 13, I hope. Um, yes, absolutely. I used to write uh, back, like I, I've been writing for just for 19 years. I've been mm -hmm. publishing and I was writing kind of chick lit, which I guess you would now be called a rom-com. That's how I started. And then I went to 
took a break and did some screenwriting for probably five, six years. And then I got back into writing novels and went to the dark side. And now I write thrillers. Yeah. Uh, so I think when I wrote uh, rom-coms, I was definitely a pantser. I was just like, I'd have a bit of an idea and I'd just go with it. Um, and it seemed to work for most of them anyway. <laughs> but then I think the what I learned from screenwriting, I really apply to writing thrillers. And I think with a mystery, for me, it's very helpful to um, kind of plot out some sort of structure. So I do follow that three-act structure of a screenplay and hit those um, plot points at certain stages of the book to try to keep the pacing up. So I kind of um, plot out those main beats and then I write towards them and how do I get there? Here's what I want to happen in the, you know, the, as we get into the first act and what's going to happen to take me to that point. And then what's yeah. going to have to happen to get me to the midpoint and what's going to, so it's become, you know, it's a really inherent story structure that we have all grown up with, but seeing it sort of laid out on a piece of paper, some people use the stickies all over the wall, but right. I don't, I'm not that, um, I'm too lazy, basically. <laughs> I just do it on a piece of paper, but I find it really helpful with a, with a thriller and a mystery to keep that pacing up and like, pace. yeah. And so tell us, and I, I love, I know a lot of people, the, the, the beats sort of like save the cat, um, yeah, yeah. Which, which is a great book for people who, you know, are starting out in, um, and I would say I'm, I'm probably up pretty much on the same page that you are. And it sounds like we've been publishing for about the same amount of time. Um, oh. But it's, um, but so, but I think I want to talk, I'd love to hear a little bit about your screenwriting experience. Cause that's a really interesting, like sort of what made you pivot and you know, what, I mean, I know you learned a ton of things from writing screenplays, but can you, you know, synthesize a couple of them for us? I'd be curious to hear sort of how that's adjusted to change your writing. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's amazing how much I learned from that. And some of it is that it's impossible almost. <laughs> fair, fair. I literally like, I had a bit of a um, idyllic first novel experience like 19 years ago. I just like, oh, I'm just going to bang out this novel. And then I just sold it, which I know now is not realistic. And to sell your first book and I think maybe I was delusional and thought, oh, I can do anything now. So um, it was sort of a blessing and a curse uh, because, you know, as you know, writing careers are like this usually, not yeah. like the trajectory. Yes. So I had had a lot of stuff optioned and I still continue, luckily, knock on wood, I get a lot of my books get optioned, whether they go anywhere or not. Um, but it's nice to have that interest. And so when when I first started writing um, and stuff got optioned, I thought, well, there's clearly something cinematic in my voice and, and my ideas. So I'll give this a shot. And I did get, um, as you read in my bio, I did get one film produced, but I literally wrote like a million scripts, like, and things got optioned and got to different stages, but it was... Uh, it didn't feel sustainable to me, like financially, you know, I, it was, um, it's a tough business. It's a very tough business, but I did learn so much. So structure would be the one thing I learned. Another thing I always, always sticks with me is the, uh, get in late, get out early of scenes, right? We don't need the preamble of, Oh, I got out of bed. Yeah. And or made a cup of coffee let's get to the good stuff right yeah. and uh, 
and don't drag it out either. Get get to the point of your scene and then move to your next scene, right? Like that's, right. I think that helps pacing so much. Um, and then the other thing is dialogue. I always read my dialogue out loud because um, I think it makes a difference. I think, you know, you, you if you don't do that, sometimes you throw in, like when, when you're really talking, you don't say someone's name very much, right? Right. Right. You, know, like, you say if you're like angry, you know, it's usually like it uses an emphasis, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, hey, just, yeah. Hey, are Joe. Like, are you excited to go to Thriller Fest, Danielle? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I want to see yes. So there's yeah. just things that you pick up, um, uh, you know, trying to get into the goods of the of the realistic conversation as well. So I think right. Those are and we don't say, you know, uh, you know, we are going right we say we're going yeah, right. it's everything is a um yeah oh, i can't think of the word for those words Judgment. Judgment. there you go yeah <laughs> I, love, I love writing i think that's right um i love writing dialogue and and um you know i mean it's like it's sort of like being in a play right yeah you i mean you're playing both parts but um it's uh it's really fun and that. I can tell that I, I can tell you how that experience. The other thing I think that, that it seems like you probably learn is distinct voices, right? When you have a page full of dialogue, everybody can't sound the same. They can't talk the same. Very true. Very good point. Um, yeah. And I feel that I feel that with Lee, you know, when in Lee and Hazel's, you know, chapters, they're very different women uh, with different strengths and different insecurities. And I felt that like, I, I felt, you know, I, of course, it's always, I think it's always helpful when the chapter says who were, you know, who's, who is talking here. Right. Because uh, then you don't have to go into sort of, you don't have to done all the extra words about setting us up with the right character. But I yeah. also feel like, you know, the sign of a really well done character is when you could read it and know who you're, you know, who you're, whose point of view it is. And you absolutely do that. I think that's really awesome. fabulous. Thank so, you. well, 13 books, absolutely happy, happy, lucky 13. So, uh, you know, since you've done this, like, you know, rom-com and screenwriting and, and I, you know, I, you know, you, you said it absolutely when you're writing careers, lots of ups and downs. So, you know, what would you say you think is the most challenging part of this business? I think that it is, um, for me anyway, it is staying optimistic. <laughs> Fair. Honestly, Fair. like it's um it can be quite heart-wrenching. I think there's so many beautiful things about it. Um but it can also be very, you know, you know, it can be really soul crushing as well. And yeah, you know, social media. So I don't know uh, if you've been writing as long as I have as well. Like when I first was publishing, there was no social media. That's how long ago it was. And mm -hmm. it was a completely different experience um, in, in positive and negative ways. In the negative ways, I didn't have the community I have now. Like, I feel like, you know, totally. I feel like we're friends, even though, you know, we met briefly at VoucherCon a hundred years ago. Right. They are friends I've never met. I, right. you know, I feel, I feel like they are friends and that's all through social media. There's so many wonderful, supportive people. But um, on the negative side, when I was publishing pre-social media, um, I wasn't comparing myself to how other books were doing because I didn't mm. know. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't reading Goodreads reviews because they didn't exist, right? <laughs> you know, we right. Have, right. So I feel like there's a lot more that comes at us now 
um, that is that is hard to you know I think our our skin thickens but it is a lot it is um it is so hard and you know I, and my first book came out in 2000 um so wow it is, so I was 2004 so you were happy yeah. so we had I mean every queries were self you know paper queries self-adjust self stamped envelopes <laughs> you know, questions about whether or not you wanted your paper manuscript mailed back to you or just, you know, I mean, it is, it is a whole different world. And I agree with you. I mean, there's something I, I love that the parts about social media that are so great, right. Are connecting with one another, which is fabulous. Um, and I had totally forgot that voucher con. That was such a crazy, that was Dallas. Um, yes. -pandemic. yeah, pre-pandemic, but, um, but also, um, I love connecting with, you know, with readers and it's wonderful to get, you know, people can reach out and tell you how much they enjoyed a book. The downside yeah. is they can also reach out and tag you on a terrible review and you think, you know, really, like, why, why would, where's the decency in that? Like, if you didn't love it, fine. If you hated it, fine. But tagging me to tell me how much you hated it is. Or, or emailing. Yes, or getting, yeah. Like, you know, that's yes. what my that's what my next book is about. It's called The Haters. And oh my God. I love okay. This is a perfect transition. So tell us. I want to hear about this. So the next book is about a woman who is, um, she's a high school counselor. She's a mom and she writes her first novel and gets it published. And it's got, uh, you know, good reviews and she's at her book launch party. And this is like a dream come true. And as she's waiting to go on stage, her friend is giving her this beautiful introduction. She looks at her phone and there's an email from a reader who says, um, you clearly stole the stories of your teen students uh, and, and exploited them to make a few bucks and you're disgusting. And she's devastated by this. Right. And then this person who makes the accusation, it starts to snowball onto social media and then eventually seeping into her real life. And she needs to find out, Ken, who is doing this to her? Is it someone she knows? Is it just a reader before she loses her career and even her safety's in jeopardy, her relationships are falling apart and it just turns into a giant mess. And um, yeah, it's-, it's a, uh, It sounds like a writer's book. You know what I mean? It sounds like yeah. we're all gonna need to read it. And plus the fact, you know, I mean, working as a school counselor means her job is likely in jeopardy too like yeah, kind of everything exactly. right so it's also about like how um yeah like people think did I tell but I told you a story very similar to that is that about me you know yes. or yeah her job it's like are you are you taking secrets from kids who come to you and you know speak to you in confidence so it's a lot about about the vulnerabilities we all face when we put stuff out into the world isn't that so true? And I think there is an, it's an interesting thing for people who are not necessarily creative this way. It, I think yeah. there's a disconnect between understanding that you can form a full story just from your imagination, right? And versus somebody being like, well, the only way you could have gotten to that story yeah. is, is by hearing it from somebody else. Because, and also this idea that there are, only so many stories, right? We've got like revenge. We, there's only so many sort of plot, basic plot ideas. Yeah, there's um, only like, isn't it the seven basic plots? Or exactly, yeah. right. So then it's like, so then the question is like, of course it sounds similar to something else because it's, it is derived from one of these seven 
plots. And if there's only yeah. seven, you know, all, it all depends on sort of the delivery of the story, which is, you know, belongs to the author. And I think people don't, I think they assume that somehow we're cheating <laughs> because right. it's like, how could, how could you have written a book that's so similar? But we see this happen all the time. You know, I mean, look at like, you know, Grady Hendrix's The Final Girl Support Group versus, you know, um, The Final Girls by Riley Sager. There's, a, yeah. you know, there was, there's some similarities there, but the two 100% different books um, and, and executed very differently. And yet there, you know, there was some hoopla about, you know, you know, was this the same, was it sort of the same story? Did you steal my story kind of stuff? And it's, um, yes. yeah, it's, yeah. And it's, you know, it is, I think you can understand, I do understand it, of course, also from the, pers the perspective of the author who thinks, who's protecting his or her own work, right? I wrote the story and is your story too much like my story? But, but it is, I think we go a little, we, I think people have a tendency to go a little nuts and not, uh, you know, at all understand the way that the writer brain works, right? Yeah, I think so too. And I mean, there's like, you know, that's a concept being the final girl of a, a surviving, you know, right. it's not, yeah, so. It's not a plot, right? It's not a plot, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it's a, it's a concept that's been around a long time because it was, you know, it's from the whatever, 70s or whenever the, you know, the original final girl um, was. And I, I'm going to, mess up when that was so well that i love the haters okay so let's just reiterate now where um we obviously you can buy this anywhere that books are sold where can we find you in the even though we were just talking about sort of the, the where can we find you that so that people can reach out and tell you how much they loved your book only if they didn't like your book <laughs> i i am i am forbidding them from going to find you on the internet or social media so there um, you go my declaration yeah. is if you want to love on Robin, here's where to find her. Yeah, I'm on Instagram at R Harding Writer and Twitter and Facebook is author Robin Harding, I think. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, mm. so yeah, I hope people love it. I, I had fun with it. The structure is unique for me. Um, telling it sort of in, you know, from Lee's perspective and then switching yes. to perspective and saying oh here's what was really going on that whole time which I I, I love doing that um and was inspired by a film called The Handmaiden by Park Chan-wook it's a Korean film I don't know it oh my god so that it's it's a really out there film but that's the structure I think it, he does um three parts and and the drowning woman is four parts um but it's like you're watching a first part and you think you know what this film's about and then suddenly it goes part two and it's like re repeats but something completely different was right happening. I love that so much um it's also it's sort of based on um Sarah Waters novel Fingersmith which also uses interesting that. I don't know that one either well and I, I kind of I think the one the the wonderful thing about that structure is that it turns our assumptions on our on its on their heads, right? Which I think is something we're all guilty of. And as thriller, re, right? You know, readers were always trying to figure out, like, oh, I know where this is going. Yes. And then, the, then you're like, oh, I had no idea where this was going. So I I thought that was great. And thriller readers, the real thriller readers, are so sophisticated and so savvy. So I literally um, was writing this book, and I thought um, there's sort of as as you're reading part one, I think there's an expected victim and uh I was gonna do that and then I was like no I have to change it I have to change it 
uh, and it made the whole plot of the book change. But I was like, yeah. I got to trick people. I'm going to really trick people this time. And I think I did. I think I did. I love that. I mean, it is, they are, the readers are amazing. I sometimes, you know, I love, sometimes you read a bad review. I've read bad reviews of my books where they're like, I had it figured out in, you know, chapter yeah. three. And I'm like, you did? I didn't even have it figured out in chapter <laughs> so three. Like, so <laughs> how is it that you had it figured out? But at any rate, you know, yeah. uh, into the world, we put good, you know, good vibes, good grace. Um, it was so fun to talk about The Drowning Woman. I'm really looking forward to seeing you next week. No, I'm not going. Okay, I so take that sad. back. I'm so okay. sad. I um because the drowning woman comes out on the 13th. Yeah. The hate do August 1st. And I'm just I have yeah. so much on and I wish I was there. I was gonna be there so much. Um I've never been. Oh. I've never been to Thriller Fest. So Okay, well you Robin, you have got to make it a one hundred percent in twenty twenty four. You just sure. have to. Yeah. Have okay. To. I'm going to, I'm going to bug you about it. I'm going to keep okay. on you about that. So, okay. Well, I will miss you next week. We will, we will toast to the drowning woman and to you. Um, thank you. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, especially on this crazy week for you. Patience <laughs> again. My pleasure. Um, so for everyone listening, this is Robin Harding. I'm going to spell that because it's a little different. Robin has got a Y, R-O-B-Y-N, Harding, H-A-R-D-I-N-G, with The Drowning Woman. Robin's hugely talented. It's a fabulous book. Go grab it right now. And we will see you next time on Killer Women. Bye. <laughs>